Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience. Marcus Williams, welcome to the Center of the Universe. Thanks for joining us. What's happening, Paul? I, I think what will put us in a good mood tonight, and by the way, we are also joined by uh, the occasional co-hosts, uh, Kevin and Silent Rob is taking notes. He's also our crack research staff, Marcus, you should you should know that. Oh, Kevin wow. and I don't look anything up, we don't fact check, but Rob will occasionally fact check for us. Okay. All right, so one of the things we talked about before we recorded just now, and we talked about, what, a week or two ago, was the way that uh, the occasional co-host, Kevin, will, uh, will eat chips. Marcus, do you, do, you, do you want to describe how he eats chips? Kevin oh, has on, this. Hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. Yeah, hold sure. on a minute. Well, first, maybe we should back up and tell people why Marcus knows this, because it sounds kind of odd that Marcus is on a guest on this podcast. The first thing he's going to talk about is me eating chips. I, I thought that was a really interesting uh, way to start the show. But, thank, uh, thank you. Thank you, Marcus. I was just trying to warm everybody up. I, I did, I did. Uh, okay, go, go ahead, Commodore. So, so for those of you that have never witnessed this um, this feat, uh, this this amazing thing, Kevin has the most delicate approach towards eating potato chips. Um, and I use the word delicate because he has really elongated fingers and kind of thin, scrawny fingers. And so that adds to the, the visual. But what he does is he'll, he will take an individual chip, not multiple chips, but like it's almost like he's got a can of Pringles, regardless of what kind of chip it is, but you will take one individual chip, place ever so artfully between his forefinger and his thumb, and then we'll caress the chip and ever so slowly place it on the, the kind of middle part of the tongue and then slowly consume it. And he'll do this for the entire bag of chips or for however long he's eating. And it's, it's, a, it's a sight to see. So when if we're talking about like a small bag of chips, one you might get with a sandwich for lunch kind of thing. Thirty how minutes. Long takes 30, him thirty minutes just to eat that bag of chips. Easy, easy, easy. And if he could minutes. consume like a larger bag, like a party size bag, it would take him like a day and a half. Absolutely, he he could watch War and Peace and uh, not not finish that thing. Yeah, absolutely. He could watch the Godfather Father trilogy and not be done. It's it's all his fingers are so skinny. It's almost like a little bit thicker than Edward Scissorhands. I wish people could see Kevin's uh, reaction right now. Oh, they can. We can we can put this video clip out on YouTube. Mm -hmm. No, we can't. No, sure we do. Mm -hmm. (laughs) All right, right, Marcus. I guess we should mention that uh, you, Kevin, and I knew each other at the bakery. That's what we call the place we used to work. That's right. That's right. I I was uh, a baker there. Yeah. (laughs) Nice. I guess we were all bakers. That is true. That is yeah. true. I also had the the full disclosure. I also had the the privilege, the honor um, of uh, living with the occasional co-host for about a year. Yeah. Which house yeah. was that? Gooseland House. Gooseland House. That's right. The, the, the brick ranch who had like one bathroom, two bedrooms. That's yes, right. and you're familiar with the bathroom. <laughs> yes, I am. And, and the kitchen was big enough for like uh, one adult and one child. That's right. Yeah. All right, cool. All right, Marcus, I don't know this answer. Where were you born? I was born in 19... 19- this was like I'm, I'm, I'm kind of echoing Richard Pryor. <laughs> but oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I was born... Um, no, I was born in uh, Glasgow, Kentucky in 1975. What is Glasgow, Kentucky known for? 
Man, man, that's a, that's an interesting question. It's the home of it's, it's the birthplace of Diane Sawyer. Uh, it's the county seat of Barron County, Kentucky. Um, it's 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 in the same county as um, the world's largest cave system, Mammoth Cave. Mm. Um, not known for a lot uh, in Glasgow. It's a small town of about fifteen thousand people. What, what was mom and or dad doing that that put them in uh, Glasgow, Kentucky? Yeah, that's an interesting story. So, so it, even though I was born and raised in Kentucky, graduated from high school there, my parents are Hoosiers. But my mom's from Indianapolis, and my dad is from Gary, Indiana, which is outside Chicago. For those that don't know, the the mean streets of Gary, Indiana. The mean, mean, terrible streets of Gary, Indiana. So we were very much, let's just say, uh, not outcasts, but we, we weren't a part of that inner circle of black families that lived in Glasgow, Kentucky. For people not familiar with Southern Kentucky, it's a little bit different than, than Southern Virginia, where you may find pockets of, of minorities sprinkled throughout uh, lots of places in Virginia where they got you know, some acreage and maybe a mule or two. None of that happened in, in Kentucky back in the day. And I know my parents said that when they relocated to uh, Kentucky in the early 70s, they thought they went back in time about 15 years. Uh, but my, my dad um, was brought there as a uh, really a, a benefactor of um, affirmative action in the early 70s, working for uh, one of the world's largest printer publishers uh, in R.R. Donnelly's and Sons. Uh, so coming out of college, he, he uh, took a job with Donnelly's in Crawfordsville, Indiana, where they had a plant and uh, they were needing some diversity down south. And so they offered him a job and opportunity. And this is an interesting story. So they actually, when they brought my dad to town to interview, they were so desperate to have some, some African-Americans in their managerial ranks that they introduced my father to the mayor of the town who happened to be an African-American, mm. a gentleman named Luska J. Twyman. He was one of the first African-American mayors of a predominantly white city anywhere in America uh, at the time. And so they were like, oh my gosh, well, you, you've got to meet the mayor. And my dad's <laughs> like, what? He's like, yeah, we got to take you to meet the mayor. You'll love him because he's black. That was kind of <laughs> unspoken. No, no, but, I, I, yeah, we all put that together. I'm with you. Yeah, well, my dad, my dad's a big guy like I am. So my dad's six six. At the time, he was a string bean, so he was probably real thin, maybe 220. And my mom's 5'2", light-complected, but she had this big, giant Angela Davis afro when they were being recruited there. And so they arrive in town with my dad with his platform shoes on, making him about 6'8", and, and his little, what he called a TWA or a teeny-weeny afro. And my mom with this big Angela Davis afro with go-go boots on, they bring them to uh, the small town of Glasgow and are trying to recruit them to relocate the family there. Well, actually, at the time, it was just my brother uh, and, and my parents. But yeah, so, they made it there. I mean, your, your dad could have explored other options, but it sounded like they made it worth his while. And your parents had some, some courage, man. There's some people that wouldn't move to that part of the world for any amount of money. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It, it took a lot of courage at the time, but I think for my parents, it was – you know, probably one of the, the only opportunities that he had at the time that was uh, offering him this type of role and position. And, uh, you know, a lot of people hate on affirmative action, but it, it 
pays it paid off for him. And I and I actually give some credit to me being able to achieve the things that I have as a result of it. So you don't like it, then I, I, I well, get it. It's it's meant to give everybody an equal playing field, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. All right. So when did your family feel like they were part of the, the community there? Because it sounds like that's not your parents didn't feel like they had any friends immediately, right? No, we had no connections to Glasgow, Kentucky at that time. And it's one of those places where, at least from an African-American perspective, you probably had 10 to 15 black families. So like all the last names, you know, of the people that live there, you know, you you they were all kind of intermixed and intermarried. Like every time my brother and I would like have a run in with somebody, it was always somebody else's cousin. That's my cousin. Don't mess with him. That's my cousin. And it was like the Depths were related to the Crenshaws, who were related to the Hayes, who were related to the Stocktons, who were also related to the Crenshaws and the Hayes and the Stocktons. It was like this crazy web of interconnectivity. And we were like a, a variant on the outside. And so every time that we would walk around the town, people would stop us and be like, who are your people? And I was like, Archie and Vicky. And they're like, no, 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 no. Who are your people? Right. And that's a kind of a common question that you'll find people will ask in small towns because they just want to understand who are you connected with and who are you related to? Because I'm sure there's not a lot of people that come from outside to, to, to live in a small town like Glasgow. Was it a yeah. neighborhood, Marcus, or was it was it, I'm sorry, Paul, what, paint a picture of where where you live. So, so when we first moved there, uh, my, my parents lived in a small apartment complex called the Shalimar Apartments. And so in small towns in rural southern parts of the America, black people, there was only real diversity in probably one or two places. Uh, housing projects and apartment complexes. Aside from that, you either lived in the white neighborhood or the black neighborhood. And so for my parents, when they first arrived, they lived in this podunk, uh, rundown apartment complex. And then we moved into a small house that was owned by one of the more well-to-do black families where they owned half the houses on the street. Um, and so I'm not going to say that we were poor, but let's Okay, we were a little bit poor. I mean, we, we had a little bit of income. But let's just say that my house was two houses away from the housing projects because in the Black community, most of the Black neighborhoods were right adjacent to the housing projects. And so, oh, and I forgot, um, Black people typically either lived in the apartment complexes or the housing projects or the Black neighborhood, or you had a house out in the country. There were really no um, mixed or... Um, segregated neighborhoods in, in that area yeah and I, I don't i'm not an expert on the laws of kentucky back then were the laws causing that or was it just uh people were trying to stay with their people kind of thing well, i don't know how familiar you guys are with redlining but i imagine that there was a little bit of i know my, my parents actually told me that when they arrived there my dad was like okay well let's take a look at housing options like where might we live and the real estate agent that they paired him with showed him only houses in the black neighborhood. And we're like, yeah, you can live over here. You can live over here. It's like, well, you know, that doesn't quite work out for like, are there other options? I, I, I know we just drove past a few neighborhoods over there and they were like, yeah, no, I mean, you know, people without saying it as much uh, basically alluded to the fact that black people didn't move into those neighborhoods. Uh, and so we rented a house um, on Cheatham Street. Uh, there in Glasgow uh, for a couple of years, maybe three or four years. 
Uh, and then we bought a house out in the country. So, um, and when I say the country, it's one of those places where you've got houses on one side of the road and then like farmland and cow pastures on the other side. And uh, the, the, each of the houses had about an acre of, of land or more. And so uh, neighbors were few and far between. So did, how long did your parents stay there after you graduated high school? Uh, one year. So did, they never really felt a part of, of the community itself. Well, they, they did. Like eventually over time, they, we became, they were kind of pillars of the community uh, effectively, but we were never, because we didn't have those deep roots and we didn't have family ties, uh, it was always a little bit different, right? It was always, um, uh, you know, we didn't necessarily uh, share bloodlines or lineage with a, a lot of the people in those communities. So it was always um, a, a little bit feeling of aus being ostracized. And, and the fact that my dad had a professional job, uh, which was rare for uh, African-Americans at that time, uh, my dad was probably one of five individuals that wore a shirt and tie and carried a briefcase to work uh, growing up as a kid. So I didn't have a lot of um, a lot of peers that uh, had similar existences to, to myself. But where we went to church and where we um, congregated and the, and the friends that we had, um, th those were all certainly people maybe that didn't necessarily have uh, the same amount of means or access to things. But uh, you know, they were part of the community and, and they eventually brought us in, you know, it, once you have kids and pets, um, a lot of those walls starts to, to break down. Uh, you know, when we start playing sports, my dad was a, a coach um, most of the time throughout my years growing up, coached my brother, uh, my, myself in basketball and football. So uh, it took a little while, but still never really broke through. Right? It's one thing to be welcomed and accepted. And it's another thing to be part of the family. Yeah, without uh, people thinking twice about you, right? Yeah. yeah. And I would say that, you know, we actually, it was interesting because my dad, um, growing up in Gary, for those that don't, don't know, Gary, Indiana is one of those places in America in the Rust Belt uh, that has suffered a significant amount of loss of um, uh, the economic drivers, the factories and the steel mills and whatnot. It's one of those places in the United States that's lost a lot of population and has turned for the worse. If you go up there now, it looks like a like a nuclear bomb went off. I mean, there are abandoned houses everywhere. Uh, the downtown looks like it's all shuttered up. Uh, but when my dad was growing up there, it was it was thriving? It was you know bustling. Uh, but as he got a little bit closer to graduating from high school, it started to see those early signs of decline. Um, and it was a place that he knew that he did not want to raise his children. So he said, you know what, we're going to the country and my kids will be relatively safe. Um, but, you know, trouble is, is everywhere. Uh, so and that's another reason why we ended up moving out to the country is because the handful of black communities in Glasgow uh, were just as bad as parts of Gary, Indiana. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah. Uh, all right. So when you were younger, like nine, 10 years old, and you could do whatever you wanted. You, you weren't, you didn't have to worry about school. Uh, your parents didn't have you doing something. How are you spending your spare time? Dude, so living out in the country at that time, uh, you know, my brother was my best friend. My brother, Devin, is two and a half years older than me. Uh, we've been roommates uh, ever since we knew, ever since we, we drew breath. Um, and so, of course, he, he is my instant uh, built-in best friend. 
Um, so he and my, my brother and I, we would we would ride bikes all over the place. And so living out in the country, we, we lived about four miles from the town. Right. And so it was a, a two lane highway uh, for the most part of it. And then uh, then it would kind of go off into a side road before you got to our house. But um, my dad was really old school uh, in a lot of ways. And even though um, we lived four miles out off of a two lane highway, if we wanted to go back in town to play with our friends and go back to the hood and play basketball, my dad would tell us to ride our bikes or walk. Uh, and so we, we would do that often, like quite often. And looking back on it, man, I'm like, holy crap, I cannot believe like we drove. I took my wife and kids back to where I grew up and we drove down that road. And, you know, the speed limit's 55 miles an hour. They're narrow bridges, creeks, <laughs> a cliff of a, of a shoulder. And to think that my parents allowed us to drive, ride our bikes back and forth uh, on that road is just unfathomable. Um, but we would do that. Um, and, and then like, you know, we, there weren't a lot of friends. We had one neighbor, uh, that was, uh, close in age to us that lived two houses away, which was probably half a block away. Um, and, uh, his name was Jeff Emmert. I'll never forget. So Jeff Emmert, he's the son of, of the local, uh, police captain, right? So his dad's on the police force. Um, and I remember first time meeting Jeff, we're riding bikes, we bump into him and, uh, we're like, you know, instant friends. So he invites me over to his house, which I was kind of surprised because I don't know about you guys, but it was somewhat rare for black kids and white kids to spend time with each other and spend the night and those kind of things. It was a little bit taboo, especially in Glasgow. Um, but you know, my parents coming from Indiana didn't necessarily have those same reservations. So he and I became fast friends. Um, but his dad had a bit of a reputation as a womanizer. He was cheating on his wife, oh. had a reputation for um, a little bit of police brutality, that which went unreported pretty often. And he was kind of had the people thought of him as the mean cop, the bad guy. And nobody wanted to mess with Cap Captain Emmer. Um, I didn't know any of this. I just knew that that was my friend's dad uh, who had, you know, four or five gun cabinets in, inside of his house and shotguns and BB guns. But that's where I learned how to shoot a gun, where I learned how to shoot a, a bow and arrow. Um, so he would give us access and go out and teach us how to shoot guns and and all these things. And so Jeff and I were like really good friends. And so he was closer in age to me than he was my brother. So we hung out more. There was this one instance where Jeff and I were riding out and I was riding my brother's bike. So my brother had this brand new sweet 10 speed. Uh, it was blue. It was amazing. And, and Jeff had this Baja beach cruiser, right? And so I, I, he let me ride it on occasion. I, I really didn't care for it. I just wanted to ride my brother's 10 speed. And so we're riding out, we're about a mile and a half away from home. And uh, and Jeff says, hey man, let me ride your brother's bike. And I'm just like, nah, man, I can't do it. You know, that's that's my brother's bike. Can't let you ride. Sorry about that, can't, can't do it. And he's just like, nah, man, come on, let me ride his bike. And I'm saying, sorry, I can't do it. So we go off and get off our bikes and find some shit, throw some rocks. And then as we're going back to our bikes, he races and gets on my brother's bike. And I'm like, dude, what are you doing? How old are we all? We're, I'm probably 12. I'm like in the sixth grade. And I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, just ride my bike back to the house. And I'm like, dude, I'm not riding your bike back to the house. You need to come back and get your bike. I said, if you don't get your bike, I'm going to I'm gonna lay it in the middle of the street and I'm walking home. And that's exactly what I did. 
So I, I laid I laid the bike in the middle of the road and I proceeded to walk home. And I told him, I said, your bike's in the middle of the road. And he didn't believe that I was going to do that. Well, anyway, long story short, uh, a lady runs over the bike. Um, and a neighbor saw us, um, you know, arguing and, and somehow reported to the lady that, oh, well, that bike belongs to these kids. And so she comes to to my house and to Captain Emmer's house complaining about the fact that there's all this damage that's been done to her car. Uh, and uh, she got an estimate. It's going to cost like twelve hundred bucks to fix. Mm. My mom said, eh, we ain't paying it, you know, after she heard my story. Uh, and uh, that was the end of my friendship with Jeff Emmert. Oh, because, wow. Well, so his father was heated, like extremely upset, extremely mad. He came over to our house and uh, him and my mom got into a, a, an argument and there were cuss words flying around. And then all of a sudden he he says, well, I'll tell you what, you know, since you guys are going to be this way, I, I don't want to ever see your boys on, on my set foot on my property again, ever. He said, if I do... I'm shooting them. Oh my gosh. What? And the, the, reaction. the crazy thing was he owned the property behind our house. And so whenever we would be in the backyard playing kickball, if a ball went over the over the fence, the game was over. <laughs> that's wow. that's that's crazy and horrible. So you and Jeff ran hot. Yeah. Like coming in and going out. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, we used to go camping together. Skipping rocks in the creek the whole night. So Jeff told his dad, obviously, a different story than you told. Yeah, yeah. And he said, well, I told him to ride my bike back, which was true. And I just said, that, well, I, I said that I wasn't going to do it. And I told his dad directly myself. I said, I told Jeff to go get his bike. But his dad just, he understood that. He just thought that there was equal culpability and, and the need to repair this woman's car. And my mom and dad weren't going to do it. But that was the end. Of the, I don't know. I haven't heard or talked to that guy since. And I've, I've been looking for him on Facebook, but I can't find him. I don't know. He's probably <laughs> cracked out or something. Maybe he'll hear the podcast. Any chance he's going to listen to this? I doubt it. I doubt it seriously. Um, he's probably on dial-up at this point. Mm. Yeah, mm. it's sad to say. Well, I got to say one other thing. So, so back then, um, when I was when I was say between the ages of ten and seventeen, eighteen. This was the this was back when when guys used to actually uh, uh, go to the park outside on the asphalt and play basketball from sun up to sundown. And that's by the time I got to be about 13, I had grew to about six foot three. Um, and I was all like knees and elbows and gangliness and um, and probably still a bunch of uh, uh, uh awkwardness uh, uh, at this point at this age even but back then I was growing rapidly and uh, basketball was in my future my dad played uh, college basketball Wabash um, and he was just hell-bent and intended on me being a center because uh, he was like oh my son's going to be tall like me and uh, he played center uh, so he's like well I'm going to teach him what I know and which was probably uh, short-sighted because I wasn't going to I wasn't I, I wasn't tall enough to play center at the next level, and I didn't necessarily have like a 40-inch vertical either. And Flippy can tell you my hands were terrible. Um, <laughs> so it was. I, you know, I wasn't going to say anything. I wasn't going to say anything. But yeah, but yeah. So, but we would ride our bikes into town and play basketball at the park all day long. And the park was like the spot to be in. It was right behind the housing projects, right in the middle of the black neighborhood. 
named after the the black mayor Luska J. Twyman. Um, and it was like when I say it was a place to be, it was a place where you could see like girls would hang out because that's where the guys were. Uh, the hustlers would bring their dogs to to fight dogs at the park. You know, you see pit bulls and Rottweilers at the park, and guys would show off their dogs with their fancy chains and all that stuff. Uh, then there was always a, a constant crap game going on underneath the pavilion that would otherwise be the place where they would serve kids, you know, uh, summer free lunch programs in the summer for the kids that lived in the projects. Um, and then you had like, you know, the, the winos and the, and the guys that uh, just got off of work uh, trying to play basketball with khaki pants and sneakers or, you know, and penny loafers on. Um, and so it was always like, it was an amazing training to really toughen you up because if you had to go hard in the paint on the asphalt, you know, you get knocked down, you know, you're going to be coming up with blood because the asphalt was unforgiving. And so it really instilled a, a level of toughness in anybody that played down there that you just don't, I don't know that you see today because uh, these kids are now playing in air conditioned uh, basketball facilities at the YMCA or wherever else, but playing on that asphalt was real. Um, you had to bring your game. And, and if, and if, you know, back then it was like, there were so many people, it was like, yo, I got next. Right. And it's like, and if you, if you had next, you got to pick your squad and you could be sitting and waiting all day long. And if you weren't good enough, you don't get to play until you, your ups is next or whatever you call it. So you could have to sometimes wait four or five games before you get a run. Did you have chain nets? We we have to chain nets from time to time. Then every now and again, somebody would break down and buy real nets, and they'd last <laughs> about you know four or five weeks before somebody would steal them or break them or what have you. I like the chain nets. Yeah, I love I grew, that sound. I grew up chain nets. I grew up playing asphalt basketball. Like when when I played, normally people wouldn't call fouls, even if they were blatant fouls. But you might get one guy that called everything. <laughs> and everybody couldn't stand that dude. And we couldn't wait for him to lose to get off the court. <laughs> Hell yeah. Absolutely true. So true. Hey, Marcus, I will give you credit for one thing. You when uh, I'll give you credit for a lot. But when we did play, I think you and I played on a couple teams um, in leagues. You you definitely have footwork. Like you could tell that your dad instilled some big man footwork in yeah. you. Yeah, yeah it, 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 you could tell. You could tell. It, it, it there was something there. Um, let's just say that. <laughs> I, that I made you fun to play with. I do not claim to be a basketball savant uh, to any degree, um, no, but it was fun. like I, I was convinced though that I was going to be a basketball star when I was younger, just because of the height. And I was always the tallest kid in class, or or the next to tallest kid in class. Uh, it it just didn't pan out. So, but I had other options, which is which is great. Well, well, you played football and basketball growing up. Did you play anything else besides those two? Yeah, I ran track. Uh, you know, I gave my hand at baseball like early on. Uh, you know, I went at the t-ball, coach pitched, and then they had the pitching machine league. Uh, and then I made it to what we called, uh, I don't know, it was junior ball or something, but where, where they the kids were actually pitching at you. And I got beamed like three or four times uh, just trying to throw a curveball, And I was, that was the end of that. I was like, I, I, I can't hit. See, it's um, kind of silly to just get hit by baseball repeatedly. Yeah. 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 I was, I could not like, so, you know, if a kid could throw a curveball, I, you know, he was, I, I was three and out for sure. Every time. So uh, when did your basketball dreams die? How old were you? Well, I, it wasn't so much that they died as, as much as it is that football took over. 
you know, I, I played all the way through to, to, to the end of my high school career. Uh, I had a couple sniffs uh, at some really small colleges locally. Um, I don't think they watched the video, but I, here's the thing. I had, I had great energy at, at basketball. Uh, so I was in amazing shape my senior year. I was probably 225 and maybe 5% body fat. But I was, I mean, I was lean. I was ripped. Uh, I could run like a gazelle. Uh, you know, so I was running track in the spring season. So I was in probably the best shape of my life at that time. And um, I played pretty good defense. Uh, it's just that offensively, I didn't necessarily have the skills sets to be great, um, but I was decent. I actually looked at a box score the other day. Uh, a friend of mine had sent me a clip of uh, uh, a photo of himself, uh, but it mentioned that I had 15 points, uh, 12 rebounds, and some other stuff. But yeah, I was I was good. I, I made the all-district team my senior year, um, but I wasn't all-region or all-state for sure. And what position did you play? I was center for our team. Actually, oh, one, year, one year, one year I played power forward because we had another guy that was like six five. Um, so it was primarily center, but occasionally power forward. Did you wish you played uh, small forward or shooting guard? If I had the handles, yeah, but I but I didn't have the handles. That was the thing. It's like I didn't have any ball handling skills to to speak of, uh, and getting me in the open court was uh, a recipe for disaster. <laughs> So you, you you were post them up on offense and then play the post on defense. I was I was the tip guy, right? So like you know if the if the ball came off the rim, I was hungry for it. I would go and tip it in. Get I, I was really great at offensive rebounds, uh, defensive rebounds, um, and, and set hella picks. I love to set picks. You were Rodman, man. That's what you were. Yeah. Oh, no doubt. That, that's how, like actually I made the varsity team as a freshman because of my energy and coach would put me in as the guy that you know, like if it was like late in the game and they needed a defensive stop he would throw me in the game uh to, to guard the ball as it was coming out of bounds or to harass one of their better players and get some fouls so yeah we run <laughs> all right let's pivot to football did how old were you when you first played contact football uh, uh i want to say i was nine years old uh playing little league football played for the the i played for the Redskins, you know, we our, our teams are named after the NFL teams. So I played for the Redskins uh, for both seasons. They had the, the thing where you could retain players. And uh, I, I want to say I played um, defensive tackle and um, an offensive tackle. I was a little bit too big to carry the ball. I was one of those kids that had to wear the, the red sticker on his helmet. Yeah, they, they didn't want you running over the little kids. Yeah. yeah right. Right. And I was so much taller than everybody else. It was just like, yeah, you, you can't touch the ball, which, which I think is sad, but yeah, I played it from nine years old all the way up to the ninth grade. And I, and I decided not to play ninth grade because I thought I was going to be a basketball star. Mm. But you remember focus into basketball. Yeah, man, I, I thought I was going to grow like a, I went to a doctor when I was in the seventh grade. And like I said, in the seventh grade, I was probably six one, And the doctor was like uh, looking at my x-rays. And he's like, oh, yeah, this kid, he's going to grow to be at least six seven, maybe six eight. And I was just like, OK, yeah, all right. I'm, I'm putting all my eggs in basketball. So when I uh, reported freshman year, I was like six four and three quarters. Um and I was talking to basketball coach. He was really excited. And he was telling me I had a shot to make the varsity if I, I worked my butt off. 
Uh, and he said, but, you know, if you play football, that's going to set you back a little bit. And I think you could get a little bit of an advantage uh, if you were to just focus on basketball and work on your footwork and work on your hands and dribbling and all that kind of stuff. And I was sold. I was like, all right, and I, I like football, but, you know, I was like, basketball was where it was, right? That basketball is like, it, it's like the sport that all the girls would gravitate to and you got a lot more exposure and, uh, it was it was, you know, Michael Jordan was all in the in the news at the time and everybody wanted to be like Mike. And so that's what I wanted to do. And I was like, man, to hell with football. Uh, I'm I'm going to I'm going to be a basketball star. Well, in and basketball, there's only five dudes. They, they all get to touch the ball unless you got one kid that just shoots all the time. Yeah. Uh, football, there are three or four guys that touch the ball and the rest of the team is is supporting them. It's a very right. different. Uh, and it's old and you got a helmet. I mean, come on. It's like whatever. My football, coach was, my football coach was pissed. The, oh, high school, the high school football coach, his son was a quarterback, and um, in junior high, had made the transition to playing tight end in junior high school. And he and I racked up a bunch of connections uh, over the, the the two years while we were in junior high. And his dad, the head high school head head football coach, was looking at that, you know, just licking his chops, couldn't wait to to get me his hands on me. And then I told him I wasn't going to play. Uh, and I was like, yeah, I'm going to focus on basketball, Coach. And he's just like, son, are you stupid? <laughs> he's, he's like, he's like, you really need to think about this. He says, you you are throwing away a potential uh, college scholarship playing football uh, as a tight end. And I was like, yeah, I get that, Coach, but I, I really – I'm not all invested in football. I, I, I just really want to focus on basketball. He said, football, he's listen, we'll get you in the weight room. We'll get you stronger. You know, it'll it'll help you out on the basketball court. Don't listen to Coach Owens. He's selling you a line of bull. And I was just like, <laughs> yeah, whatever. So I didn't play my freshman year. And you I came, didn't You came back to football, though, obviously. I did. I did. So that's that next year, um, it was pretty obvious after that basketball season that whenever I faced anybody on the court <laughs> – any size and weight on him because I, I that freshman year I, I came in at six four and three quarters and about 175 pounds mm. yeah. Jeez. a little light in the ass um and so <laughs> even the basketball coach was like yeah son we we could probably uh use you use you in the weight room a little bit more uh and so he was uh, a little bit supportive of me playing football that next year as well. <laughs> he changed his mind he did. That's, he did. That. that's that's uh all right. But before we go on, I have to. Do you know whether the uh, the Redskins are now known as the football team? You know what? Um, the last time I talked, a buddy of mine was coaching, and he he mentioned that the league doesn't even exist the way that it used to because of the lack of interest in football at that age uh, has dissipated to the point to where they now just have two teams for the entire town. And those two teams go out and play against other smaller communities uh, adjacent to, to Glasgow. Whereas mm. back in the day, we had at least eight different teams playing padded football at Little League. Yeah, wow. That's a, yeah, that's a crazy drop, in, but I, I think it's happening all over the country and has been for a while now. Yeah, no doubt. It's it's unfortunate. I get it, but it's it's still sad. Um, I hate to see the demise of uh, of football these days. Oh, well, and, and there are more options. There are just way too many sports going on these days. I mean, back when I was a kid, there were three sports. Now they're like, I don't know, 15. 
Yeah. Play. Well, and you have other distractions that have nothing to do with athletics. Not to mention there's a bunch of punk-ass kids out there. <laughs> yeah. Wow. No doubt. No doubt. All right, so uh, <laughs> did you play – when you went back your sophomore year for football, were you playing tight end? I was. I was playing tight end and defensive end, and I was wrecking shop uh, <laughs> in high school. I, it was it was a lot of fun. Uh, the tight end, um, my evolution at tight end, it grew slowly over the years. There was a there was a, a a guy in front of me that was a my sophomore year that was a, uh, a junior named Matt Bowles. Uh, it's funny, Matt Bowles has got a son that plays for Alabama now as an offensive tackle. But Matt Bowles was 6'6". Uh, he was kind of the the darling of the team. He's one of those like one of those one of those white dudes that was cut out of like um, uh, what do they call it in Hollywood? Like a casting thing. Granite. Um, yeah, something like that. Anyway, he, he was just like you, you could have put this kid in movies. You know, he had that comb over, the 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 nice quaff of hair, and he just had this statuesque build, and he had the softest hands this side of the Mississippi and the dude was talented. Um, and so I kind of was his understudy my, my sophomore year, just watching him play and would occasionally sniff the field at tight end. But most of my time was spent on the de- defensive end side, side of things. But even there, I wasn't a, a re- regular starter on defense my sophomore year, but I played special teams uh, throughout all of that. All right. And then uh, when did you know that you were going to be uh, a, a really good tight end? Um, probably starting my junior year. Um, and even then I wasn't, I didn't, I don't know if it was clear to me at the time that, um, I had a, a potential future playing college football, um, just because my, my stats weren't really amazing. Um, we were a run oriented offense. We ran the triple option and it was like, you know, three yards in a cloud of dust and, um, you know, there was a, a favorite primary receiver that a quarterback loved to throw to. And it was just, you know, the, the tight end game back then wasn't that great. Everybody couldn't be Mark Navarro uh, back in the day from the Giants, which was kind of the guy that I, I really idolized. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, so I was like, yeah, this is great. I, I thought it was going to be a more effective defensive end because that's where I really had a lot of passion for. I love getting dirty and, and getting after the quarterback. Um but it just turns out that tight end, I had, you know, there were there were better opportunities for me at tight end, especially because I was still kind of lean uh, even after my senior year. So it sounds like you were playing tight end, but it was basically a blocking position on offense. Yeah, I was like a third tackle, yeah. right? Really light in the ass, um, tall, thin. Uh, so it was, you know, using my arms and, and the, the length that I had to really uh, – move people um it, it was less about uh, the strength that i uh, that i had and as, as i mentioned before my, my hands i had uh, hands of stone i was like uh the, the boxer what <laughs> roberto duran that's another uh roberto duran reference mark that down uh, paul yeah. um what, what was the competition like in glasgow i mean what what i mean what level were you guys what high school level yeah so in kentucky we went up to 4a and we were a 2a school um, and so we were, I would say, one of the elite two-way programs in the state. Um, we were always, uh, we were pretty constantly winning the district and always very competitive at the region. Uh, and I would say would make states uh, about every four or five years or so. We never made state while I was there. Uh, we, we got to the regional final all four years and lost all four years. 
Uh, we ran into uh, the team from Fort Knox, Kentucky. Fort Knox, they had this amazing ability to recruit kids from places that you've never heard of before. They always had a bunch of kids from Hawaii and, uh, you know, uh, right. Fort <laughs> huh? It's Fort Knox. What are we talking about? <laughs> well, it was all these army brats where, the, you know, the parents would get, you know, transferred into Fort Knox and they'd have this like amazing five-star recruit. <laughs> Uh, that wasn't there last year, and we'd always <laughs> been with them every single year. Yeah, wait, wait a minute. Can can we explore something for a second? Kevin's yeah. implying that because there's a lot of gold at Fort Knox we got money. back in the day, that they were handing out these gold bricks, yeah, <laughs> to these football kids. Right. I, I don't know about that flipping, but uh, that's the excuse you should have been using all these years. Yeah. Yeah. You should, hey, what happened to uh, your buddy, the the Greek god? What did he end up playing? The guy that had the, the kid at Alabama. Matt, Matt Bowles. Matt Bowles. He ended up going uh, – he ended up playing baseball somewhere, I think. I don't oh, think okay. he pursued football, um, but I want to say he ended up playing baseball somewhere and got hurt um, and came mm-hmm. back home. Yeah, he, he really didn't, you know, have much of a career anywhere else. His kid has – at what point yeah. uh, did you know you were going to play college football or, or at what point did colleges start expressing interest in you? So my junior year, it was kind of like, so, so, the, and I figured out how this works after the fact, but whenever as a high school coach back then, at least uh, whenever coaches had any kids that had potential uh, and were deemed worthy of uh, getting a look uh, the colleges would send out these kind of flyers to the coaches and say, hey, do you have any kids that you think we should look at? And then they would reply back with some names and statistics and uh, biometrics about the kids, the height, the weight, all that kind of stuff. And so because my coach was like, all right, we've got a kid here who's got pretty good, like really good grades. Uh, and he's and he's has a frame uh, that you could build on. And uh, he has a kind of a bit of a motor on him. I think this kid, um, you could you could turn him into an athlete, turn him into a player. Uh, and so all of a sudden, almost overnight, my junior year, I started getting letters in both basketball and football. Mm. Um, and it was really just kind of the cursory high level. Hey, want to introduce myself. You should really think about, um, you know, uh, coming to school at Decanes or coming to school at this school or that school. So I got a ton of letters, letters my junior year, but it wasn't a lot of like personalized um, attention. It was more so the the forum stuff. Um, and then my senior year, uh, that's when it started to get uh, pretty serious. Um, I started seeing a lot of scouts at the games and, uh, you know, wanting to say hello to me, even though they weren't supposed to. Um, were you the probably, guy that everybody was coming to see? Or were there other players that they were coming to see? There were a couple of other players. We had some uh, decent talent um, at a couple of different positions, but most of those guys just didn't have the grades. Like we had a bunch of, what was it called, Prop 17 guys, the guys that um, uh, academically didn't meet uh, the the mark, uh, but, you know, they could go to school and get their grades up and meet certain standards, and then they, they would be allowed to play the next year. Um, so we had a couple of those guys, um, both in basketball and football, uh, but I was I would say my senior in football, it was me and maybe one other kid that was that was getting recruited. But I was the only one that got a, a scout college scholarship offer uh, from that football class. So did you get multiple offers or, or was it from the one place? you ended Yeah, up? so I got an offer. I got an offer from uh, University of Kentucky, uh, Vanderbilt. Uh, Western Kentucky was poised to provide me an offer, but I never went on the visit. 
Uh, University of Louisville was poised to give me an offer, but I, I did decline that visit as well. I only went on two visits um, during my, my uh, senior year. I went to Kentucky first, uh, and then Vanderbilt was my second visit. And after that trip, I was like, I'm done. I'm signing. Um, but I was heavily being recruited by those schools that I mentioned. Eastern Kentucky thought that they had a shot just because they were like, well, this kid's probably uh, on the cusp of um, being a D1 kid or, or not. And so they had just won the national championship, I think, at, at the year before, two years before. And so they were one of the elite Division 1A uh, programs. And so they were like, hey, man, this is why he came in the office with all his rings and was like, yeah, this is why you should come here. I know you're talking to these other guys, but, you know, they're they're mediocre. Um, so why go there? And, and he's like, don't you want to win championships? You know, I'm just like, oh, wow. that sounds great. But, you know, it's not D1. Um, and then I was getting recruited by Northwestern, Duke and Rice. But I think most of those schools didn't think they had a shot at me because they were uh, so far away. Um, but I was handling a bunch of phone calls from their coach and staff. But for me, Northwestern really wasn't a consideration because they had went 0-10 the year before. Duke had maybe won two games the year before. Um, Rice was also ter equally terrible. But Vanderbilt had just come off of a, uh, I want to say a five and, no, 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 a four and six season, which for them was a, a huge improvement. Uh, it was uh, Jared DiNardo's first season as head coach there at Vanderbilt the year before I got there. Uh, and he had just come from Colorado where they had won a national championship with Eric Bieniemy and Cordell Stewart. And he was the offensive coordinator there where he uh, was the orchestrator behind their triple option offense. And he had brought that to Vanderbilt. And when he arrived, he signed the number 13, um, number 13th ranked recruiting class in the country uh, the year before I got there. And so they had all types of signs that were pointing to them turning the program around and having the the skills and tools and players to, to really be able to make some, some difference. So I was like, Sure. So, Marcus, I know we're talking about football and athletics, but gracious, man, you just listed a bunch of high, higher learning academic institutions. What in the world was your grade point average in high school? Were you the valedictorian? Well, don't, don't answer that question. You can give us like it was pretty good or it was really Are good. Are you not supposed to ask somebody's grade point average? I don't need to know his GPA. He doesn't want to tell us unless it was awesome. No, he was getting recruited by Duke, Northwestern, and Vanderbilt. This is what I'm going to tell you, Flippin, and that is not a difficult thing to achieve in, when you're playing college football. Um, <laughs> but, so I, I had I had a 3.5 GPA coming out of high school, and I had like a 26 ACT score. So okay. good, not great, um, not phenomenal. Um, but, but Mark is really good for a kid that's going to play D1 football. Absolutely. And so it would have been no question that I wasn't, you know, I wasn't going to need to be an exception, uh, entrant into those schools. I, I would have been an easy, uh, at, uh, to, to, and then that's what made me attractive because they didn't have to worry about the fact that I could compete, uh, in the classroom and, and was likely not going to have to give them headaches whereas there were a lot of those schools have to have exceptions granted for some of their students don't sell yourself short marcus you're a very attractive man but, I and you. i didn't mean to uh, put you on front street like that i i didn't oh, uh, i didn't know it was taboo to ask somebody's great point average well hey you can ask me and i'm old <laughs> enough i'll probably tell you but but it's not something to be proud of 
I mean, three five <laughs> is very respectable. Yeah. Uh, that's cool. Well, well if All I right. thought his was low, I wouldn't have asked. How about that? Right. So, so I Marcus, I, 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 I it was low. Marcus, I will tell you this. I, I've been following, much like Kevin has been following college football, ACC, Big Ten, Big 12, SEC. It's been dominant for a really long time. Uh, but there have always been a couple teams that not always, but most years, I'm like, why does Vanderbilt keep playing Alabama every year? year or every other year why does kentucky keep doing it i I don't understand it now i i know there's a bunch of money to be made for those schools but i don't know did you feel like vanderbilt had a chance to win a bunch of games when you were there do we have a chance to win a bunch of games i felt like like eight or more kind of thing (laughs) i'll just say what's a bunch there there was uh, my, my sophomore season when we went five and six i felt like we had a shot at winning about seven games or so and at that time, Alabama was down. It was some down times at Alabama. They weren't. They certainly weren't the elite program that they are today. Um, they were. Um, I want to say Gene Stallings might have been the coach there at one point, and somebody else at another point. But uh, the Alabama program was in need of a, a lot of uh, kind of restructuring and repair, and um, the fans were not happy. Uh, and we we were pretty competitive against the Alabamas of the world. At that time, um, Florida uh, was at the top of the heat. We're kind of the clear um, kind of elite team within the conference. Tennessee was probably a close second. Um, that was in the early part of my career was uh, when Heath Schuler was there. Uh, and then Peyton Manning came in uh, shortly thereafter. Um, but Georgia, we actually beat Georgia my – I want to say my junior year when I was there at, at Georgia uh, at their during homecoming. Um, so um, in Alabama, we had them on the ropes one year. I think they won by like a, a last minute field goal uh, at the end of the game. Um, so over the years, now granted it wasn't in a single given year, but we would, we've competed with every single one of those teams with the exception of Florida and Tennessee who molly whopped us almost every single year. Like they just destroyed us. Tell us, tell tell us the story of uh, going up against who was the guy at Florida, um, the defensive end. Oh my gosh, I can't believe Carter ben, was it Ben Carter? Hanks. Who you talking about? No, Ben Hanks was a strong side linebacker. No, no, no. You talking was, about Kevin Carter? Yes. Did you? Ooh. Don't you? Yeah. Tell us the story. So <laughs> this was, uh, I want to say, my redshirt freshman year. Um, so, so of course, not, not my very first year in school, but my second year in school as a redshirt freshman, um, you know, this is the first year that, you know, you're really going to be burning, uh, your, uh, eligibility. And so I was playing special teams at the time. I was like the third string tight end, uh, really didn't ever sniff the field, um, at that time, unless we went a three tight package. Right. Um, and this particular game. Uh, the starting tight end got hurt, like he messed up his knee. And then the secondary tight end, second string tight end, uh, he like ripped his jersey and got blood all over to something. So they they made him go, you know, address all of that and, and, and told him he can't come back into the game until that stuff was fixed. And so they needed a tight end. They were like, <laughs> who's up? You know, like Williams, get in the game, right? And so well, – Hold on. Uh, height, height and weight at this point. Ooh, uh, at this point, I was a um, not so uh, svelte 
uh, I was I was six five, uh, a sloppy two forty. <laughs> sloppy. <laughs> well, and I'm just saying, I was more like skinny fat, if if you will, right? So I was doing everything I could to gain weight, you know, to make weight because I had like actual weight goals that I needed to achieve. And I was eating everything under the sun. I remember um, <laughs> going on binges of eggnog during the wintertime. I love freaking eggnog. I would eat, I would drink like a whole quart of eggnog in like a day, which is like a gazillion calories. I was doing whatever I could to gain and not good weight just so that I could make it. But yeah, so I was a sloppy 240. Uh, and Kevin Carter was like six, seven, uh, 275 pounds. And just like a twelve pack of abs, and, and and this was back when when the guys were allowed to roll their jerseys up underneath their shoulder pads, right? And so Kevin Carter, as a DN, he walks. And usually that was something that DBs would do, right? Like you know the Dion's of the world, right? Those guys were all flashy and wanted to show off <laughs> their ass. Well, this dude had a freaking twelve pack, and the coach goes, "Who's up?" He's like, "Williams, get your ass in here," and I'm just like. Eyes this freaking big. because So as a third string guy, right, I'm not really getting a lot of reps in practice, right? Uh, I am like this far away from the scout team. You know what I mean? And so it's like I'm getting some reps in, um, you know, but most of my time is spent in individual drills and doing special team stuff, and I barely know the offense, and, and the coach throws me into the game, and I got to go up against Kevin freaking Carter. This guy I'm seeing on SportsCenter, they're doing like – whole packages on Kevin Carter and how he's just destroying the league. And he's, you know, poised to be a, a first round draft pick, all this stuff. And that man, I'm six, five, but he looked like, uh, he, he looked ginormous to me <laughs> when I walked out on the field. And um, this man probably had at 275, I bet you money. He had at least an 8% body fat or less. And so this guy was ripped. And I'm, I'm going, holy crap, please, you know, just don't let this guy put me on my ass. Um, so I walk out on the field. I hear the play. I break the huddle. I run out. And and, uh, and I'm hoping that he's not – maybe he's, like, flip-flopped on the other side. And sh- it, it, the thing is, how I run out, to, run out to the field to get ready to put my hand in the ground, and he's on the other side of the field. So I'm like, you know, maybe I got a, a linebacker I got to deal with instead. But then that some bitch comes back over – and he lines up in front of me, and I'm like, holy crap. And it was like a – I don't remember the play call. I just know that it was a passing play. And um, apparently they were blitzing, like, one of the, the strong safeties or a linebacker, and he had coverage in the flat. So he really didn't rush. He kind of did the thing where, he like, he, he hand-checked me, and then he backed off into coverage. And uh, I did my job. Let's just say that. Let's just say that. And that, was, that was your only play in that game? Only play, well, only play as a tight end in that whole game. Well, I think, well, you know, I did PAT and and uh, maybe one uh, three tight end package, but that was the only like real legit play I had that game. If he had bull rushed you on that one play, what do you think would have happened? Ooh, I'll put him on his ass. <laughs> there you go. That's right. Yes, you would have. No doubt. Did, did he end up? Uh, he made it. Made in the NFL, right? Was he a first round pick? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't. I, I know the name. I didn't follow him, obviously. Oh, he ended up playing for I think the Eagles and the Titans. Somebody can fact check me on that one, but he had a pretty long career. You never had a nightmare about him, Paul. That's why you <laughs> you don't remember him. <laughs> Mark, 
Marcus acts like everybody had to go up against him for one play back in the day. <laughs> yeah. I would oh, remember man. that for sure. That's yeah. cool. All right, so Marcus, did you have any touchdowns? Never in my entire career. But you did Never. have a two-point conversion. Two-point conversion, but no, uh, no, no, no touchdowns. And here's a funny thing: and the two-point conversion was called back. Oh, well, did you get? Two-point. I thought you scored a two-point conversion on, on Thursday night TV or something. I, Maybe well, you. We thought we did, but it got called. Oh. Back. Oh. Mm. So you officially have no points in, in the Vanderbilt books. Well, not even the Vanderbilt, but even in high school. In high school, I had something like, I don't know, 600 yards receiving my senior year in high school as a tight end, which is phenomenal I am, in my book anyway. But it was it got so bad. Here's the thing. It's like I, I was not the fastest guy in the world, right? Like my top end speed was okay. I think I ran like a 4.8 in the 40. Um, but I, didn't, I wasn't quick. And uh, wasn't didn't have the best hips in the world, but my senior in high school, my coach tried desperately to get me a touchdown because I didn't have any up to that point. You know, I would I would occasionally like I think my longest uh, reception was like sixty something yards, dragged down at the two, uh, or it'd be like you know we'd be on the fifteen yard line, I catch a ball at the three, I get stopped at the one. Uh, and it kept happening over and over and over again. And then finally, I want to say the last like regular season game of high school, they line me up as a fullback or, or as a tailback trying to get me a touchdown when we got like in the, the red zone or, or like at the five yard line, it, you know, stopped at the half yard line. And it just, it just never panned out. Um, that's probably one of the things about my career that, uh, bugs the heck out of me the most is that I never, uh, had the glory of scoring a touchdown in a game in practice I did all the time but never in a game did you score any in like junior high or like little league never you never you never scored a touchdown never wow that's crazy you're a d1 sec football player zero on the squad not on the practice squad you're on the team and wow that's crazy 600 plus yards zero touchdowns (laughs) wow was uh was nfl ever a thought for you for a brief moment. So uh, interesting story here is that um, my, um, I guess my redshirt junior year, the, my third year in college, um, Jared DiNardo left and Rod Dowhauer and company entered into the picture. So Jerry left to go to LSU, uh, Rod Dowhauer, mm-hmm. uh, who was a former offensive coordinator uh, for a number of different NFL teams decided that as part of his retirement package, he was going to go and take a head coaching job at a SEC school. So he brings in, uh, for those of you old school football fans that know uh, the name Jeff Rutledge, Jeff Rutledge used to be the starting quarterback for Alabama when they won one of their championships in the late 70s, had a pretty long-term career in the NFL. He was our quarterback coach uh, slash offensive coordinator, brought in a guy named Rennie Simmons, uh, who ran our linebacking crew, uh, Woody Woodenhofer, who was um, had the moniker of being the, the the orchestrator of the Pittsburgh Steelers Steel Curtain. Uh, he was our defensive coordinator slash assistant head coach. Um, and my pers- my tight end coach was a guy named Ken Wisenhunt. And Ken Wisenhunt, uh, former Georgia Tech All-American at tight end, who then went on to have a pretty lengthy uh, NFL career himself. 
played for the Redskins, played for, uh, I think, the Eagles, a couple other teams. I can't exactly remember. Um, this was his first coaching opportunity after retiring from the NFL. And so he had me and a, a bunch of knuckleheads that played tight end at Vanderbilt that uh, he got to cut his his teeth at coaching. And so he was with us for two seasons. Um, and Ken Winsahunt uh, left us, and I think he went to go work for either the – Panthers or the Steelers or one of those guys and, and ran special teams, uh, had some success, uh, started being an offensive coordinator, then eventually became the head coach of the Arizona Cardinals and then eventually the Tennessee Titans for a year. But uh, Kenan Wisenhunt was he he made me into uh, a believer like this is a guy who has been there. He done. He was an All-American. He played for several years. And he made each and every one of us tight ends believe it because I felt like he was speaking from the heart and saying, look, I've I've played this position uh, and knowing what I've seen out of you guys, you know, working on the field. I think each and every one of you guys could be in the NFL uh, if you had you know, the right opportunities and uh, you continue to work hard, you could do it. And he was able to tell us a, a lot of nuances about the position and how and technique that I had never heard up to that point. Uh, all the coaching that I received, even my freshman and sophomore year uh, in college, it paled in comparison to what Coach Wisenhunt was able to teach us at that position. And it was amazing. And at that point, I, I, I thought there was a chance. I, I thought, you know, it was just more of a matter of me uh, getting more opportunities and having more catches on the field uh, and that it was possible. Uh, and then he left. What was the difference in what he was coaching? Is it was like a footwork thing, a balance thing, a, a route running thing? What, what was so special about it? All, all the above, but the thing that was really most distinguishing was that he could actually show you how to do it. Um, my other coaches were more talking about what to do, uh, whereas he would actually get into the position, or he would run the route, or he would show you the technique uh, and and fully demonstrate it, and really talk to you about it from the perspective of someone that's done it as opposed to someone that's studied it or someone that's read it in a manual or, or heard about it at a, at a football coaching conference. Uh, he was able to speak from first firsthand experiences uh, how to be able to do the, do the role well. Yeah. Uh, young men, m males in general learn better visually. Yeah. And so ha having somebody talk about it, you're going to retain maybe 15, 20%. You actually see somebody do it. You're like, okay, now we're talking. Yeah. 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 Was, right. uh, so did your Kevin Lewis card, Rob's giving us some stats on text message, but uh, I don't have my phone on. Uh, <laughs> it only read partial message, but apparently he was really, really good. I'm going to have to learn a lot more about him. Really I, good. I, I kind of wished he, uh, he, he'd rushed you. Uh, <laughs> Married the homecoming queen too. Uh, another fact. And, and, and his father-in-law was the athletic director at Georgia tech. Uh, he always used to tell his stories about, dating the uh, AD's daughter uh, when he was in school. She's pretty, she's a fox. Good guy. Sounds like good. Very good guy. Yeah, that's cool. All right. So uh, after college, you, you, at some point you realize you're not, did you ever try to go to the NFL? Well, you know, we would have pro timing days every year. So the NFL scouts would come to, to Vanderbilt um, and we would have like, you know, MTSU, TSU, uh, Tennessee tech guys would all come to our, our school uh, and uh, a bunch of scouts would descend and, on on campus, and then we would all, you know, run the forty, do the two twenty five bench press test, uh, do the box drill, um, and um, 
in the agility drill. And, you know, they would time us. And, and if, you know, the guys that uh, emerged from, from that having kind of elite scores and performances, um, by the time that you were a senior, if you were about to exit, you know, those guys would get a call back and they would bring you up to where, wherever their facilities were and then they would do another workout. Um, and this typically would happen before the combine. So the NFL combine, I can't remember the exact numbers, but I want to say it's somewhere around 300 or so uh, athletes across all of football get invited to participate uh, in the in the dog and pony show uh, to, to show off your goods in front of the scouts. But if you think about how many, I mean, there are almost 300 uh, D1 programs uh, playing football today, and there's a little bit over 200. Oh, no, no, I'll take that back. Uh, D1, I want to say it's maybe around like 140, 150. Uh, but if you include uh, the, like the bolt, the whatever you call it, the D1A guys now. D1AA. Yeah, you're talking 200 plus, almost 300 schools. And so to have to get an invite uh, to the combine mean that you are the cream of the crop. And you know, we were fortunate enough to have every year, uh, I would say, two to three guys that would get invited to the combine, which, you know, for most teams, that's really good. For SEC teams, that's eh, it's OK. Um, but the balance of power for Vanderbilt was primarily on the defensive side of the ball. Like our defenses were freaking amazing. Uh, I mean, like my fourth year playing, they were ranked like number four in the country. But our offense was ranked number 95. Right. So you can't win too many games if you can't score. And we, we would lose so many games, 12 to 10. It, was, it wasn't funny mm-hmm. or like, you know, 14 to, to three. Um, but, yeah, I, so the, the NFL prospects, you know, um, my fourth year in school, I started um, experiencing back problems. Like I had this like extreme sciatic nerve pain um, that was plaguing me. I remember getting multiple MRIs and they were like, ah, oh, this looks a little bit problematic, but you could probably manage through it. Uh, it got to the point to where like walking around campus, going to class, uh, the sciatic nerve pain would hit me, you know, after about five minutes of walking, I'd, I'd have to um, bend over, squat to provide some relief. And they were really reluctant to move forward to have surgery. They just said I was too young um, and that they would heavily advise against it. And I would, and actually, I want to say starting around my junior year, uh, I started having incidents, incidents of my back just going out on me. Like I would run a route and step wrong and then it felt like someone shot me in the back and I would be out for like a week, week and a half trying to recover. Uh, and then it just started to happen more and more frequently to the point to where I was really getting concerned uh, about my ability to continue to play and, and or whether or not I was going to need to have surgery. Um, and, and then we also had a coaching change my fifth year. So here's the thing. Um, I played was on the team for four years because I redshirted. I had an option to come back for my fifth year and I had every intentions to do so. Um, I, I played in spring game that year, uh, worked out in the summer. And I want to say between uh, spring ball and winter conditioning and uh, the fall camp, my back went out on me about three times. Uh, I was living off campus and um, let's just say that uh, school wasn't much of a priority. Um, I had a girlfriend. I had a, uh, a uh, an amazingly healthy uh, uh, business uh, cutting hair. I was like the campus barber. Mm. And my attentions were just all over the place. And 
school work, unfortunately, uh, did not get the attention that it needed. And I was, I had figured out this thing. It was funny because when I was in high school, coming from a small town, two-way school, um, although I was a good student, my teachers were all just like really excited for me to go to Vanderbilt. And I didn't know much about Vanderbilt coming out of high school, nothing at all, really. Uh, but they were like, oh my gosh, that is a really good school, really tough af- academically. You know, you're really going to have to buckle down in order to, to do well there. And I'm like, okay. Um, so I got there my freshman year. Here's the thing. We had like 23, 24 guys in my freshman class at Vanderbilt. After the first semester, out of those 23 guys or so, 18 of us were on academic probation. I was one of the few that was not. I actually had, um, I think I had like a 3.2 or 3.3 GPA at the end of that first semester. And I'm like, this is a piece of cake. This is this is cake. You guys told me that it was going to be tough. That's a crock, crock of shit. These teachers will bend over backwards for you, do anything you want. And I had made the mistake of someone had told me once that, you know, hey, if you don't think that you're going to do well on a, on a final or a midterm, just ask them for an extension. And I was just like, oh, what? They were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you, you play sports, you'll, you'll have plenty of excuses to provide. Just tell them you need an extension. You, you need like another week and, and they'll give it to you. I was just like, get out of here. So I, I asked a teacher, I think this is somewhere around like my sophomore, junior year. And sure enough, she said, absolutely, sure. Dude, by the time my fourth year rolled around, I think I had, oh my gosh, I had like six incompletes, right? And I'm talking about like on my report card, it was like an incomplete. Uh, so you had like, you know, your grades A through F. And then I, I had all of these eyes all over the place. Yeah, where, eyes are eyes are only, uh, the only thing worse than the eyes of F, yeah. Yes. And so basically when you look at your GPA, if you have an eye on your report card, it, it's, it's as if you got an F until you resolve uh, that class with the teacher. Uh, so needless to say, uh, that last year, uh, my academic advisor uh, pulled me in and have, had a come to Jesus meeting with me and said, son, are you planning to graduate next year? And I was just like, absolutely. And she goes, well, not going to happen if you don't clean up all of these incompletes and, and take care of uh, take care of business. And then she just had a real heart to heart with me. And she says, you know, what do you want to do with your future? Are you, are you thinking you're going to be an NFL star or something like that? She goes, she says, she says I've watched the games. She said, I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. So I really think you need to buckle down and figure out what you want to do with your life. And I was just like, okay. And it was one of those real talk moments that really, uh, it changed my life. Uh, and made me look at things with a completely different perspective. And this conversation happened over the summer. Um, but I, I still was intent to buckle down in school, get better grades, and um, and play football. I went to camp, uh, did the two weeks of hell uh, there at camp. And then uh, at the end of camp, I had the, the one-on-one meeting with the head coach, who was Woody Wittenhofer at the time. And he and I just sit down and we hadn't talked. I hadn't even thought about this at the point, but he, he asked me uh, how things are going. And I said, well, you know, Coach Maskell is an asshole. He was the new tight end coach, by the way. Sorry. The Coach Maskell was brought in after Coach Wisenhunt left. 
And Coach Maskell, I think he came from some small school in Texas, and he was an old school guy, probably in his late 50s at the time, and just an ass. I didn't like him at all. Um, and he saw what was going on with me in the classroom. He saw what he thought was, um, in his words, I was a waste and wasn't um, providing the leadership uh, that I needed to be showing off the field. And so he basically told me that he was going to um, he was going to degrade me from first string tight end to the bottom of the barrel. Mm. <laughs> wow. And I was just like, you got to be freaking kidding me. I'm going into my fifth year. You can't do that. Um, and so he and I bumped heads. I remember he he attempted to fire me, uh, were his words. Like he told me I was fired uh, in, a, in a meeting room because I, I attempted to take up for one of my, my co-tight ends who he was digging into at the time. I was like, Coach, you can't talk to him like that. And he's just like, you can get the fuck out of here too. You're fired. And so he he had already just did that to Freddie Baker, um, had sent him to the locker room and told him he was fired. So I told him he could do that, you know, whatever. And he told me I was fired, too. So I go in the locker room, Freddie Baker's sitting there and uh, he sees me walk through the door. He's like, what are you doing in here? I said, yeah, he fired me, too. <laughs> Coach Woody walks into the locker room is like, what the fuck are you guys doing in here? And I was like, he, we were like, Coach Maskell fired us. He said, he can't fucking fire you. I'm there, Coach. <laughs> you guys pack up your stuff and meet me on the field you can't do that anyway so so fast forward we had our after camp i had my meeting with coach woodenhofer and he's like son look he says uh you know i understand what's going on you're struggling in class um uh, you just seem a little bit disconnected he's like what do you want to do with your life like what's going on with you? and i was just like coach i i i don't know i i don't know and I, what was going on was like I had lost passion and, and I was no longer excited about football. And I was just and I told him as much. And, and I was like, in my back is driving me crazy and it's giving me pains. I think I might have to have surgery. And he's like, look, he says, I'll be honest with you. He says, I, at the end, end of the day, I, I'm really concerned about you guys' future. He says, I've been there, done that. You know, I've seen so many guys over the, my course of the many years of coaching football. And he says, your long-term future is more important than, um, you know, this football stuff. He says, this stuff is fleeting, you know. Even if you make it to the NFL, you know, the average – and he was telling me about the average career is like less than three years and all that kind of stuff. He's like, you really got to do what's right for you. He's like, and if football is not in it, if you don't have that passion for it anymore, he said, then maybe you need to move on. And I was just like. And he says, look, I don't want you to worry about losing your scholarship or anything like that. He says, if you – want to tell me that um you know you 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 need to hang it up then I'll support you in that. He said, "Hell, matter of fact, I'll I'll, I'll make it so that you go out uh, with class." And um so we talked a little bit more and, and at the end of the day he called in a reporter from the Nashville Banner uh and 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 they printed a, a byline that said, you know, Titan Williams retires. Um was was the line that they used in the newspaper. Um and you know, he had cited some of my medical issues and just said that, you know, he just, you know, tight end Williams decided to hang it up after, you know, four years of playing, yada, yada, yada. And I thought that was really classy and cool. Um, and he allowed me to kind of hang out, stick around the locker room. But it was uh, probably one of the hardest decisions I ever had to make. Um, and, and at the same time, one of the greatest decisions I ever made as well, because I, I got to enjoy 
college life as just a regular student that last year. Yeah, because you're doing two hard things, especially at a school like Vanderbilt, right? You There's no shit academic requirements. Plus, that, that's a full-time gig playing college football at that level. It is, it, and it's really taxing. And a lot of people don't have appreciation for what the kids – they used to make us sign this, this BS um, piece of paper that said that we had only devoted – 20 something hours a week, uh, you know, uh, doing football. Uh, and it was easily double that. I mean, cause if you just think about the time we lived in our athletic, uh, department and center, you know, you were either going to practice in a meeting at practice or like, you know, you know, cleaning up and all that kind of, it's like, we were over there all the freaking time. And it felt like we were there for like at least 45, 50 hours a week. Yeah. Cause you, yeah, you, I'm sure you were. All right, Marcus, uh, I wanted to explore your post-college life, but we normally go about an hour, 15, hour 30. So we're going to do two last things, and then we can we can have you back at some point. Yeah, no doubt. Talk about post-college time. All right, Kevin, hit him with your uh, your three-part question. Well, or your, well, well, before you do, do you want to do family after that? Yeah, we're going to go family after All right, cool. All right, so <clears throat> this is our um, big question to wrap up the, uh, the podcast, Marcus. And you might be one of the few people that have actually heard this question before because – it's something that I started back at the bakery. Um, so you actually may have done this. Kevin so, fell in love with this question, Marcus. Okay. Kevin fell in love with this question a long time ago. Um, you are a late night host tonight, just tonight. All right. You've got to pick a male guest, a female guest, a music group, and we've added a comedian. To oh it, God, and this can be dead or alive. It could be anybody you want. It could be Famous, family. It could be yeah. yeah it, it it doesn't matter. This is your show. You could go for ratings. You could go for this is the Marcus Williams show. I don't care what anybody thinks. I'm having who I want. All right, so, uh, my male guest. I I, I want to have Richard Pryor on. A huge Richard Pryor fan. Listen to his records as kids. Would love to talk to Richard about uh, how his life in general growing up. I gotta gotta have Rich um, as my male guest. Uh, Before you go any further, that that's hilarious though that we just came full circle because you were about to use a Richard Pryor <laughs> line to start the episode. No um, doubt, Tupelo, Love Mississippi. You. All right, go ahead. Tupelo. <laughs> yeah. Uh, female. Wow, that's that's a that's an interesting one. Um, this is. Uh, uh, how about I, I'm gonna come back to female and I'm gonna go ahead and go to to musical guest. Um, I, I once saw Prince in concert, and that man put on probably one of the most amazing shows that I've ever seen. He played like five or six different instruments. Uh, he is such a, an enigma of a performer and individual. I love his octave range, uh, his musicality to switch from rock and roll to bluesy soul to uh you know crazy print stuff that only he could sing uh love ballads the whole nine would love to have prince on um as well you probably thought i was going to go hip-hop which i you know it's certainly in in the in my mind but well uh, let me, look uh let me say something about prince real quickly he grew up in minneapolis you don't expect that guy to come out of minneapolis and to do what he did but he i think he was able to play like 23, 24 instruments well. Uh, and uh, yeah, his, his level of creativity is exceptionally rare. Played almost 
everything, including vocals on the Purple Rain album. And and every time that you see people, you know, on stage, you know, they, they basically were uh, stage props, right? Because he did all of the drums, the the lead uh, guitar, the bass, etc. Amazing dude. Um, so you said male, female, musical performance. What was the other category? Comedian. Which what do you want prior to be your comedian or your male guest? Oh damn, that's that's a good point. Hell, well, I, you, I, I yeah. you can make him your comedian and pick another male guest if you want, or vice versa. Uh, you know, I'm I'm just gonna leave him as my 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 male guest. Uh, I love his stand up, uh, but he, his story is so deep and rich. I, I probably would bring on another a different comedian. Um, it, Dave Chappelle is almost too easy. Um, I like Dave Chappelle to me is like modern day Richard Pryor in terms of his you know political viewpoints, is his thoughtfulness, the the way that he sees life is just. Interesting. Yeah, so I'm going to go Dave Chappelle. He's I, too, I, hey, hey, Marcus, he's too easy because he's too freaking funny, man. Too freaking funny. If I could do a combo of like Dave Chappelle featuring Bill Burr, like those are two of my favorite comedians today because they both tell it like it is. They're not afraid of, you know, what the, you know, the, the whatever you call those people out there that are trying to cancel the cancel Nazis. Um, you know, they don't really give a shit about them. Uh, and uh, they, they speak the truth, and I love that. Um, oh, and here, I thought you were going to go with your cousin, Cat Williams. Go ahead. No. <laughs> There's no way they're related. Mark's not at all. Half taller now. <laughs> he looks like Prince. <laughs> and, and if I could bring somebody back from the dead, it would probably be uh, Robin Harris uh, to yeah. hear him talk about baby kids or the man. Yeah, 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 that's good. Yeah. Um, uh, females, um, ooh, that, that's a tough one for me. Um, you know, J Janet Jackson's got that documentary out. I, I, she's, she's on my list. Um, here's Any a bit of, here's a curveball for you. I, I was always infatuated with Linda Carter as a kid. You and, Linda, you and me both, man. You and me huh? both. Linda Carter was the finest woman on TV when I was like five or six years old. With that one Wonder Woman bustier she had on mm -hmm. and spin around, oh Lord, um, mm. I don't know how interesting she is, but uh, I would just love to just have her on the couch. Like if I can get like twenty-two year old Linda Carter, uh, and well, of course, <laughs> it's, it's your show, and we're bringing people back from the dead. So yeah, you can make yeah. it twenty-two, sure. Yeah, yeah, I would just like oogle at her um, for a really long time, and uh, her. Oh no, um, uh, scratch that, Felicia Richard. Um, um, uh, Bill Cosby's yeah. wife on Mrs. the Mrs. Huxtable. Mrs. Huxtable. That's that's my that's my female guest. She, her, her her now or her then? Her then and and her then her then. To me, she was like the epitome of what a classy, sexy, cool, funny woman could be. Like to me, it was like if I had a if I could make a wife like it, she would be the one that i would attempt to emulate because she was smart she was funny uh she held her own in, in a debate or like she's just amazing she could dance she could sing she was sexy she was beautiful uh that's that's my one is right she there. still is she still married to bobby moore i do not know that um did she marry him after um uh rashad well, no, that is my rashad Oh, <laughs> no, they got it. Oh, okay. All right. I got yeah, you. They got it. I got you. That, that was a good one. That was a good one. Yeah, like you, you, you Cassius Cletus. I got you. You did. You did. That was for Rob Dole. 
<laughs> Rob Dole. <laughs> it was. All, all right, cool. cool. That, that's a good show, Marcus. I, yeah, I, that's that's great. Great. I, now, granted, they all they're well. Yeah, well, mine is the Linda Carter reference. You know, the, I know that they're all black, so forgive me. Uh, I'm, well, no, you've got Linda Carter and Bill Burr as backups in case the others. Yeah, don't show up. Right. I'm not yeah, sure yeah. Prince was black. I, Prince was a race of all of its own. I, I agree. He was. He was an alien. I yeah, I think in his good race. Way. Was a, I think his race was a symbol. There you go. <laughs> He could get away with the one, the one person in this world that could get away with changing his name to a symbol. Amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. I like that question though, flipping. It's it's a that's a solid one. That's thank solid you, man. Now, we, we've been we've been using it the last what's fifty or sixty episodes. So yeah, it's it's quite revealing. It's meant to be revealing about people. So that's that's why we like it. Cool. All right, Marcus. Let's uh, finish up. You tell us about your. Uh, your family, your your bride and your kids. Oh, dude, I, I've got an amazing family. I, I love them to death. I'm proud of them. Uh, I, I brag on them all the time. So let's start with my wife. My wife, Annie Williams, uh, a Virginia girl. So I remember as a kid growing up, my brother and I used to cut out, uh, I can't remember what page number was, but Jet Magazine was like this black magazine uh, that had, uh, it was really small. It was only like eight inches tall, like six inches wide. You could find it in grocery stores, like in the checkout aisles, right? And so I remember as a kid, my parents, my grandparents all used to subscribe to Jet Magazine, and they would always have in the middle of the book the Jet Beauty of the Week. And, and growing up as a kid, uh, for whatever reason in my brain, I had always thought that the most beautiful women came from Virginia, right? And I was just like, ooh, man, when I get old, I want to go to Virginia and Virginia Beach, and I'm going to find me one of them fine dimes in Virginia, and I'm going, I'm going to wife her up, right? And so when I had the opportunity to, to come to Virginia to go work at Capital, at the, the bakery um, back in the day, that was like my mission. Man. I was like, I'm going to come here and find me a wife. And I did. I did. So my, my wife, um, she it was weird. Uh, while at the bakery, there was a, a, an employee there that told me she had a girlfriend that she thought would be perfect for me. And she, for weeks, attempted to try to get me to hook up with her. But she, all she could tell me was that she was cute, which is a red flag in my book. Uh, and I'm just like, well, that probably means that she's not all that great looking. And uh, and I was like, well, can you tell me more about her? Can you show me a picture? And she's just like, yeah, yeah, well, I don't have any pictures. And I was like, well, let's just figure out a way for us to meet up. We met. Uh, it's, it's all history from there. But uh, amazing woman. She works in education. Uh, she's my ride or die. Flipping, flipping knows her quite well. Love her um, to death. She's the best, man. You, you outkicked her coverage on that one. I, I did. I did. And, <laughs> and so she's still, uh, we, we, we have fun and uh, enjoy each other every day. She makes me a better person. And uh, she compliments me very well. Where I'm weak, she's strong. So um, that's, that's my baby. Her, and um, again, can't say much more about her. And I've got two amazing kids. So uh, my, my oldest my daughter Maya. She's uh, she'll be 15 in April. Uh, Maya is uh, a chip off the old block in many ways. She's uh, she's tall. She's about five nine. Um, she's smart as a whip. Like this kid. When I remember in the first grade, she came home and said, "Dad, I know how to do multiplication." I'm just like, "Wait a minute, they're, they're multiplication in first grade?" She goes, "No." I'm like, "You guys are learning multiplication?" She's like, "Well, not really." She said, "Well, there was this." poster on the wall and i just looked at it and kind of figured it out 
and uh, the kid is is brilliant. She's multi talented. Um, athletics isn't in her future, and that's okay. Uh, she she gave it a shot, and she's just like, yeah, I'm just not into it. Uh, she's a, a pianist. Uh, she's she's on the archery team, the robotics club. Uh, she's taking a bunch of AP courses, and she's just got a really bright future ahead of her. And just way too mature for her age. Um, my son Tyson, aka T Money, um, he's uh, that's my dude, man. He's he uh, he's fun. He's hilarious. Um, it's interesting. He has a lot of my wife in him, right? He, he's he's very has a huge, a really high emotional uh, or what do you call it, emotional um, IQ or whatever. Yeah. Yes, it's, this dude is so empathetic. It's it's uh, it's unreal. Like he has this unique ability to tap into other and have understanding for how other people are feeling. He is equal equally um, smart and brilliant in the classroom, and and he has this sense of style that I never had. Like he likes to he likes to to get his fit together, right? He likes to make sure his socks match his his shoes and his pants are coordinated. Um, and uh, he's he's going to be a little lady lady killer one of these days. It's it's bound to happen. So he's he is uh, he just turned eleven years old. So he's in the fifth grade. Did who who gave him the name T Money? His uncle BJ. Um, his uncle BJ gave him that nickname. I think when he was about four or five years old. Nice. It's a good nick nickname. It is. It, it's so it's 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 stuck. Um, so. I know his sister calls him T, uh, but T Money is a, is kind of the the nickname that stuck. So we'll see how I, that goes. I mean, I wish I had a nickname like that when I was five years old. I, I do as well. I never I, my nicknames are always terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all shared that because we're all roughly the same age. Yeah, man. Cool, Marcus. Well, man, I appreciate you doing this. I, I learned a ton about you. I, I enjoyed all of it, especially the. Uh, the funny parts uh you guys lo- lo- you and kevin love comedians y'all know more about what they're talking about these days but the last thing i'll say about like bill burr and Chappelle, uh that's what comedians are supposed to do so the fact that they're in the minority of comedians is is troublesome that that's the role they're supposed to play in society i agree, I agree. put the mirror up and say this is this is who we are right now so well hey listen marcus we, we are going to have you back on bumper night um, yeah. because there's so many stories that we could tell. We didn't even dip our toe into the things that, that, that we could just lay out there. I mean, including going to Duke games and all the experiences and, and sleeping on the side of the road and just all kinds of crazy fun stuff that, uh, you know, that we did. So that, and I think that's a better vehicle for that anyway, because tonight we just wanted to hear about you. Yeah. Real life story, and, and it was it was a lot of fun. I, I know a lot about you, but I learned a lot about you tonight too. So, um, I, we appreciate it, bud. Man, this is awesome. Uh, I really appreciate you guys having me on. This is uh, it's it's somewhat cathartic and uh, pretty cool to kind of do some self reflection as well as I'm telling the stories. It's like uh, it, it's brought up a lot of nostalgia um, as I was thinking about some of these things I hadn't even talked about in years. So. This is a great format. Really appreciate you guys having me on, man. This is uh, this is awesome. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us. 
You can find us at scodopodcast.com. Thank you.